Hello, and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, we'll be discussing science fiction and fantasy digests with Trevor Quatri. Trevor has been the editor of Analog Science Fiction and Fact magazine since September 2012, the sixth in a distinguished line of editors. Between that and Analog having run uninterrupted in one form or another since 1930, it should be no mystery why we chose him as our guest for this topic. And here we are with Trevor. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down, man. I'm really excited for this chat. So let's start on the shallow end here. Do you recall... Think way back in your life here. Do you recall the story that ignited your passion for science fiction when you were young? Story or series or, you know, what was what was the spec fake that like grabbed you and made you go, okay, yeah, this? Boy, that is a tough one. And it makes it sound like I'm a lot older than I really am yeah, to, sorry. to have to <laughs> like, ponder, think back you know, a like hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, all the way back to the halcyon days of the 1980s, the mid 80s. Well, probably the first stuff that really caught my attention was was films. You know, there were so many. And I had the luxury of pretty lenient parents who let me watch a lot of stuff so that uh, even as I was learning to read, I was already sort of um, invested and experienced in having seen things like Star Wars. And um, I have a tremendous soft spot for Barry Longyear's Enemy Mine, you know, the movie that got made out of that. So things like that, that really stuck with me then are, are sort of what also propelled me into thinking, oh, well, you know, if I liked it there, I'm sure I would like reading about it too. And lo and behold, I did. Awesome. Um, so I think it's important to set the stage a little bit for audience members who may not be aware of Analog's history. You know, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about its founding and maybe some of the great authors it's featured and its overall mission statement, you know, maybe when it started compared to now. So, um, Analog is the longest continuously running science fiction magazine. There are older, but they haven't always been around throughout the entirety of their run, let's say. Uh, but we've been around since January 1930. We were founded as Astounding Science Fiction and went through a number of different permutations of that title before becoming Analog Science Fiction in the early 60s under John Campbell. And uh, the point of that name was... People hear it now and think, oh, analog as opposed to digital. But the, the point at the time was that it was supposed to be sort of this, um, this thought crucible for how to apply science fiction to the real world. So it's analog in the sense of is analogous to. And when we changed from Astounding, which was, again, a very pulp name, and we were one of the pulps and, you know, pulp energy and um, pulp stories that Campbell in particular did his best to sort of push past over time. When we became analog, the direction changed most significantly. We've been doing it gradually prior to that. But um, when we became analog, it really became very focused on that sense of science fiction as thought experiment, literally thought experiment, thinking about science, thinking about hard science, hard science fiction, that being, the, you know, the hard sciences also, not that it has to be hard-nosed or unpleasant or aggressive or something like that, whatever other associations you may have, just that hard science is part of the makeup of it. And over the years, we've published a lot. 
of different things. This has been a good year for adaptations that started in the magazine. So uh, a lot of people know that Apple TV is running a foundation adaptation mm -hmm. and foundation was originally an astounding. And also the Dune movie, of course, is big and Dune famously uh, was serialized in analog before it was a novel. And of course, I'm talking with you at the Merrill Collection and Judith Merrill's first published short story was in Astounding in 1948. Yeah, there you go. We've got like a little, uh, nice little connection there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's been a, a good year for our prominence, sort of secondhand prominence, but nonetheless, I'll, I'll take it. Oh, man. Foundation, I think, has gone over pretty well, but flipping Dune, you can't escape it. No, I, I hope that's brought some new readers back down uh, to the magazine. One hopes. You know, it, it's a connection that we try and tout, if at all possible. It's, it's like a trail of breadcrumbs from the, the movie to the novel, which people will often get, and then... You know, I, I like to be that guy who sort of leans in out of nowhere in a bookstore, not that we go to bookstores anymore, but and goes, hey, did you know where that first appeared? <laughs> no, I just think it'd be so cool. Like, like, imagine just picking up analog and you're reading, you know, in the 60s or whatever it was exactly, and, and you're reading Dune and like, just, oh, I wonder where this is going. <laughs> like, just, it's funny to imagine reading in a serialized format, uh, even, I, you know, like, I know it went on to be a series of books, but dude, just the very first book, reading that, like month to month or whatever like right oh. yeah and even seeing the movie gives you a little bit of a sense of that too because the movie is not the full novel either mm -hmm. so it's interesting to see people react to the movie and have expectations of where they think it's going you know people who haven't read the book who have no other familiarity with it uh to see the movie and to see them react to it and it's almost as if those are the people who are kind of going through the serial for the first time you know, okay. as the editor, you have the advantage of saying, oh, well, just wait. It's not going where you think it is. <laughs> um, so, so thinking also about history in maybe a lighter way, uh, you know, I've been always going back and doing some research for this and noticing, you know, you had kind of uh, sci-fi period buzzwords, right? In the 40s, everything was atomic. You know, go forward to the 80s, there was a lot of like quantum theory and nanotech. You know, what do you see as the sci-fi buzzwords of today? What's getting a lot of work and what maybe could be given a break, do you think? Yeah, you're right. Um, atomic was huge. Psy stuff, telepathy, psychic powers was huge for a while, too. Um, the nanotech thing definitely persisted through the late 90s. You know, even when I started working at Analog as an assistant, the number of nanotech stories was like insane. And you know, you kind of had to push back on that a little bit because it, it's too easy to almost treat it like magic. But we've kind of pushed past that now. I think sort of connected to nanotechnology, we had a, a solid decade of very heavy focus on things like genetic engineering coming out of having mapped the human genome that opened up a lot of uh, biological science fiction stories, which is great because there hadn't been a tremendous amount in comparison previously. If we're going to talk about which science kind of comes out on top, it's generally a very heavy physics-based genre or subgenre. Uh, so seeing a little bit more biology enter that was big. And now it's not so much one single thing. We're seeing a bit more focus on climate, which is a long time coming, and it's not something that has been non-existent. But I would say that we're we're seeing more of that. We're seeing that peak, or presumably peak. There may be even more uh, on the way. And, uh, oh, a lot of uh, AI, a lot of things coming out of the self-driving car idea. Mm -hmm. So a lot of stories about that, but also the ramifications, the, the implications of sort of Internet 2.0. Everything is smart. Everything is connected. So smart houses, smart cars, smart weapons, smart all of that. 
So I would say there's kind of a focus on that now, but I don't think that's quite as large as some of the other the macro trends. That's really more like a micro trend. Do you have a lot of like 3D printing? I feel like there'd be a lot of people looking at that and going, oh, what if you 3D printed a moon or whatever? Well, not as much as you would think. And it could be that other people, other venues are seeing that. There's been some attention to it, but often it's more background information that kind of sets things up in a more minor way. I've actually seen very little where it's the crux of a story. Okay. And actually, it just occurs to me, there's a term that might be worth outlining for any listeners who are not uh, familiar, and I'd love to hear your take on that. Um, I think it's fair to say Analog has had a focus on hard sci-fi, uh, but what does that mean to you, the distinction between hard and soft sci-fi, and where do you draw the line personally when you're like looking at submissions? Well, uh, hmm, that is a very good question, and I feel like sometimes going around and explaining that to every single author or reader I meet is like a quarter of my job. And the answer I, I usually say is that all it, it has to be is the hard sciences, that being uh, physics, chemistry to a lesser but still legitimate degree, biology and associated things, um, have to be relevant and uh, extrapolating from what we currently know. So you can also make some fantastic jumps but it's not fantasy. We're not depicting things that we know cannot happen. We do our best to try and fit into the the cracks of the plausible, if that makes sense. And that's really it. The only difference between that and other science fiction is it's a little less focused on the social aspects, on psychology, sociology, the soft sciences. And again, not a perjurative, hard is good, soft is bad. It's just a specific focus for what we do. And then... Once I explain that to people, I usually follow that up and then annoy them by saying, but it's also kind of arbitrary because throughout the history of analog, there have been many exceptions to that. There have been many things that we published that even by the time and the standards of what science fiction genre tropes have been grandfathered in over time, we, we've always published stories that sort of break those rules. Uh, we talked about Dune earlier. And yes, Dune came out at a time when psychic powers were still very much in vogue and people considered them a, a possibility of something that we might really be able to prove exist at, at some point. But, uh, you know, that's not the case. That hasn't been the case. And we can pretty safely say will not be the case. But even setting that aside, there's a tremendous amount of ecology to the story. There's a lot of very thoughtful world building. It doesn't take things for granted. It doesn't hand wave. And for the most part, there isn't fantasy. But yes, uh, you know, a, a drug that expands your consciousness enough so that it eventually mutates you and lets you bend space with your mind is not really hard science fiction. So again, there are exceptions. There are things that people could point to and go, well, that's not hard science fiction. How, do, how did that appear there? But that's always been the case. The exceptions in many ways are the things that I think are not most interesting, but they're also part of the analog DNA as much as the classic analog, you know, hard slide rules and asteroid mining stories. Yeah, like calculating rocket thrust and stuff, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Analog, more than other venues, has a very specific mission statement, something that we do and something that I always keep an eye on as I'm selecting stories. But there are always going to be things that come in that fall between hard definitions one way or another. And then it just is going to come down to personal preference, how much I think it works as a story, how much I think it's making an interesting statement, how much I think it's doing something right. 
Because at the end of the day, even when I look back to previous editors for guidance or as, as a lodestar, um, there are enough examples where they themselves looked at a story and said, well, maybe this doesn't fit exactly, but I like it and I like what it's saying. So going back to Campbell, because again, as the founder of the magazine, you know, he's the person that uh, everything sort of gets directed back toward one way or another. There are plenty of things where he just published a story because he liked what it was saying. He liked the message. It liked that it was giving a message and whether it really, you know, fit the current standards of uh, hard science knowledge at the time is kind of secondary. So sometimes there will be exceptions where I say, based purely on my own uh, admittedly arbitrary standards, you know what, I, I like what it's doing and let's go for it. Uh, but there are other times where maybe it is just for whatever reason too far afield. And there are a lot of stories I like that are just not right for analog as a venue. Um, so bring it to yourself. How does one become the editor of a SpecFig Digest? And how did you? Uh, well, you know, uh, genius and good looks and hard work. Uh, no, uh, sheer uh, luck, more or less. I was in like many people, a science fiction fan, uh, but I was an English major. And when I graduated, I gave myself a year to get a job before I said, okay, then we go back to graduate school and learn something of real use. And in that year, I applied to an ad that back in the, the ancient days of 1999 was uh, in a physical newspaper in the New York Times in the one ads. And I applied to it, and it was not clear what I was really applying for, but I got an interview, and one of the interview questions was, you know, so what science fiction authors do you like? And I think I really just got lucky with rambling about the people who I could think of off the top of my head. I started talking about how I liked Roger Zelazny and uh, R.A. Lafferty and Jack Vance and going on and on. And I think the fact that I didn't just kind of go, oh, well, you know, I don't really read anything. I just like watching Star Trek episodes. I mean, sure, who doesn't? But that's not going to get this job. And that really, I, I think, gave me a leg up. And it turned out the person giving the inter interview uh, was Sheila Williams, now the head of Asimov's. And I think she just really liked my reading list. And that was enough to get my foot in the door as an editorial assistant where I worked for Analog and Asimov's doing the office scut work, the filing, the checking the email, all of that stuff. And after that, it was just a matter of persistence. It was just a matter of always finding something interesting to do at the job. One of the great things about the job is that what you were actually working on, what you were looking into, what you were reading every month changed. And from day one all the way to now, what I find myself reading and having to research and look up and fact check and discuss things with authors, it's different. It's always different. People always have different ideas. So I'm always pushing myself. I always have to push myself outside my boundaries, my comfort zones. And being in a position to do that and stick with it for a very long time was all it is. The right place at the right time and then persistence. All right. Uh, different editors define different eras in any magazine or digest history. What exactly do you feel comes to define an editor's time at the helm? What are like the qualities of an editor's tenure? Mm, boy, that's a good, that's a good one. Okay. Well, um, I think any 
editor has topics that necessarily concern them and they find themselves thinking about on multiple occasions over and over again. And those topics are what are going to surface in the magazine, even if they don't do it intentionally, even if there's no sense that they want to beat a particular drum over and over, you can't help but have the things you're thinking about show up on the page. So, you know, there are many things that John W. Campbell was fixated on and they're in the pages of the magazine. Um, to a lesser degree, you can see the things that Ben Bova was interested in and the things he wanted to expand the way he consciously wanted to widen the gates of analog. And that's on the page. And a lot of Stanley Schmidt's personality, I think, you know, I, I worked with Stan for 20 year? How long have I been doing this? 22, 15 years? Yes, a, a long time. And so I know him well, I would say. And you can find a lot of his, his personality and the way he thinks in the pages also. And I can't say for myself, but I think probably somebody looking back will be able to find the same things with me. And some of it may be an illusion. You know, people always perceive patterns that aren't necessarily there. I was once at a convention and I had just started working solely for analog. I wasn't the editor yet, but I was uh, solely at analog and uh, Sheila Williams had just taken over at Asimov's and somebody came up to the dealer's room table at the convention and said, well, you know, the new editor is really, I think, trying to get this particular topic off her chest. And I was like, well, it's interesting that you say that because you don't actually know what stories were in inventory when you took over. You don't know what Gardner Dozois, previous editor, had bought, and you don't know what Sheila bought. I know, but you know, you don't, it's, it's a thing you can perceive, but that doesn't make it true. And I remember the way, lady going, yeah, but I still think that's the case. And I was like, all right, clearly I'm not gonna win this argument. So there's always that sense of, you know, uh, art is in the eye of the beholder. So I don't, I don't know, I can't speak for myself, I guess. Okay, fair enough. Well, I, I guess we'll leave it to uh, the historians to, to put it together. Yeah, I, I'm sure they'll think it's awesome, though. No, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, just, just an illustration of two big thumbs up, then on to the next one. Right, uh, yeah. right exactly. <laughs> so the history of long-running digests and magazines doesn't just track sci-fi obsessions like my buzzwords question earlier for example uh but you know social issues right for example even in a hard sci-fi mag uh like analog i was going back through uh you know history here and seeing how like in you know the may 1983 issue of analog had both a stanley schmidt editorial called the right to what and a timothy zan story the final report on the lifeline experiment both tackling uh, the editorial in the story when exactly a fetus may be recognized as human then acquires a right to life which is contentious to this day with some how do you see the magazine's role in discussing topical, often controversial sociopolitical issues? Uh, well, that's, um, that's interesting. I've had to discuss that with people a lot lately because I wrote a, let's say, somewhat controversial editorial at the end of, uh, I think it was the November, December 2020 issue, I guess. So it was the end of our 90th year, and we were running a series of retrospective stories with introductions about why whoever was writing the introduction found it notable or it thought it deserved extra attention or something like that. And I decided to close it out with Gordon Dixon's Call Him Lord, which falls into sort of what I consider civics science fiction almost, where there isn't a tremendous amount of 
capital SF science fictional stuff in it. It's, that's mostly backdrop. But what it does concern itself about, and there's a lot of it during and coming out of World War II in particular, is uh, questions of power and citizenship and things like that. Starships Troopers is, is a good example of that. Of course, there's, you know, alien bugs and power suits, but it's really not about that for the most part. Well, uh, a little and, later, you're reminding me of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Very yes. specific sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, great example. And so I tied it into, uh, without turning this into a whole thing, I tied it into contemporary American politics, which is something I had up to that point avoided very hard. Because once you start staking out positions like that, people just tune out. That's the reality of it. Whether you want them to or not, it's going to happen. But I felt that it, it would be cowardice for me to talk about the story in a roundabout way and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and let people kind of read between the lines. That if I'm going to give the readers credit for having a brain, they're going to put two and two together anyway. So why not just come out and say, look, this is a pro-science, pro-reason magazine. And like, we do have positions on certain things. And we don't need to take a stand for everything because it's not always viable. And it's having a hard position on certain things is not always the way to go if things don't merit a strident position. Sometimes things are very complicated and nuanced, and that can be your position. So anyway, so in the wake of that, there are a lot of people who predictably who and, and you know, I, I, I certainly saw it coming. But there are a lot of people who are like, well, you know, keep your politics out of my out of my science fiction. And one of the great quotes I got from Stanley Schmidt was that when it comes to politics and stories, people only ever notice politics that aren't theirs. Everything else is just a fish being in water. So one of my multiple sort of guiding principles with analog is that it should be a place where people have to think. It should not be a place where you come to get a pat on the back and you have your pre-existing beliefs reaffirmed and, and that's it. It, it. it shouldn't be comfort food. It should be something that challenges you, at least on some level. And now a lot of analog's readership tends to be a little bit older, a little bit more science-minded, often men, sometimes leaning a little more conservative, sometimes a little more libertarian, doesn't matter. But that gives you some sense of where the challenge needs to come in. So you don't ever want it to be a simple, rote, partisan dogma, because again, there's no thinking there either. But if you sort of know which way your audience's comfort zone is, you're leaving your editorial position on the table if you don't prod them, if you don't try to shake them up a little bit. And for the most part, you know, uh, plenty of people who said, well, you know, I, I don't agree, but, uh, you know, that's what editorials are for and so on and so forth. I was happy to see that. And that's the kind of response I was hoping for, at least. I mean, I also like to try and get some people to write some letters in. So that's there's some dialogue. So, you know, I'm not trolling, but I would like to, you know, you, you do want to do things maybe that stir up the pot on purpose. Um, conversation going. Right, exactly. You want conversation because, you know, again, you want to get people out of their bubbles a bit. But, you know, there were also people who said, well, you know, politics just don't belong here at all. And it's not hard to go through the pages to go back to, you know, the editorial that Ben Bova wrote during Watergate 
to go back to the many contentious editorials from John Campbell, and to go to some of the editorials that Stan wrote, many of which I wouldn't say are contentious, but they're things that are meant to be thought-provoking and things that people then took politically. You know, uh, I remember one, Stan wrote an editorial about how much people really need to be driving big gas-guzzling SUVs. And people, you know, flip their lids about that. So again, what people perceive as political, there's only so much you can do about that. So attempting to avoid it is not always feasible. You have to be conscious to do it in a thoughtful, not rote, non-dogmatic way, but it has to be done to some degree. To what degree, though, and how you do it is very subjective. Yeah, a constant balancing act, I imagine. I mean, to tie into something you said about you know the older audience, Analog's running a while. I imagine you have some very old uh, fans indeed, but of course, like any endeavor with the community being built, you want to be bringing in new younger authors, and that must be kind of a balance, pardon me, readers, well, and authors. Uh, yeah. I imagine that must also be a balancing act. How do you approach that, the try and trying to go between the people who are 19 and the people who might be 90? Uh, well, I don't conscientiously think about trying to appeal to one group or the other. Because anytime I've let myself get complacent about that, I've found readers who wrote in and surprised me, you know, with their positions and with their um, with their intellectual capabilities and nimbleness. So it's very easy to think that the older readers are going to be, you know, that the long term readers, the people who've been reading since I was born, are going to be stodgy or stuck in their ways and one of the reasons I love my readership so much is that to a surprising degree, they're not that they're people who are really are. And of course, there are always going to be some you know sticks in the mud, but they're people who are capable of, of thinking outside the box, who are capable of thinking of new ways of doing things, who are capable of adjusting. And as long as I focus on giving them fiction and articles that feed that, then the age doesn't really matter whether they're 19 or 90. It should, I like to think, appeal to them the same way, either way. Okay, cool. And, you know, continuing along my, my theme here, I guess, for a few questions of balance uh, and figuring out what's the chemistry, maybe issue to issue or year to year. So I was looking at your latest issue and you've got, you know, flash fiction, novelettes, short stories, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And of course, something that's been in the magazine, I think, from the very start, Nonfiction, having science content. How do you decide about sort of the amount of nonfiction to balance with your fiction, and what are your what are your feelings about that when you're putting together the kind of pie chart of the content of a new issue? Uh, well, this is going to be maybe a slightly disappointing answer because it's a little rote. Is that when I started working here, it was a pretty simple. Um, there's one nonfiction column. There's one, possibly two, uh, fact articles or nonfiction pieces in an issue. And when we moved to double issues, I literally just doubled all of that for the most part, which also means I'm not hitting my own goals because rarely do I actually have enough nonfiction to have like three full nonfiction pieces in an issue. So I always have at least one. I aim for two plus a column. But yeah, the answer to that is math. You know, I just do it by the number I'm supposed to have kind of. 
No, it's okay, man. Sometimes you got a recipe: three cups of flour, two cups of sugar. Yeah, right, uh, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and would that be a similar kind of thinking behind the fact that you guys do have, a, so like I say, a wide variety of of lengths for your submissions? Like I say, novelettes, you know, novellas, short stories, flash fiction. Like it just it's quite varied, and not every you know digester magazine I see out there does that. A lot of them kind of stick to just like you know up to five thousand words or something. Yeah, well, that one is a bit more subjective because I can't always guarantee that I'm going to see things of the length that would give me a perfectly balanced issue every single time. If I see more than I need, optimally I'll buy them and then keep a little bit of an inventory so that I can spread them out so that I have a stockpile so that if there's famine, I can use it in that area. But there are no guarantees. And there are definitely some issues where I did not have as many novellas as I'd like. Each length also has its advantages and disadvantages. And it's great to be able to get stuck into a nice long novella. But the standards for a novella are also maybe a little bit higher than a shorter piece because you're sticking with it for much longer, taking up a larger portion of the magazine. So if I see a novella that I like, okay, the question then becomes, do I like that novella more than maybe four short stories that I could present in that same length and have a wider variety of topics or voices or authors or whatever it is, where people might hate one of the stories, which is fine, but maybe that increases the possibility that they'll really love two of the other stories. So I try to stay away from things that are just okay, that I go, okay, it's, it's, it's fine. And that's another thing that I revisit as I try to work on the magazine in general too, is I'd rather have stories be divisive. I'd rather have people be like, man, I, I hated a third of that issue, but I loved a third of it, rather than reading the whole thing and kind of going, yeah, it was okay. I, it was what I was expecting. It was what I thought I was going to get. Yeah, I mean, within limits, of course, it's sometimes better to have people yelling at you than ignoring you or forgetting about you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And tastes are valid. What somebody else hates, somebody else might love. But I rarely find that things that most people just kind of shrug at get much of a reaction either way. So I'd rather risk the hate in order to get maybe a little bit more love. Yeah, and I, I like what you're describing. It kind of makes me think of Tetris almost in the sense that you have, have word count bricks of different sizes to be able to always get like, a, you know, whatever big rectangle. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a great example. Do you feel that it's good to keep the shorter, uh, perhaps slightly less stringent formats in as a way of giving exposure to newer authors? E yes, the short answer to that is yes, period. <laughs> But to expand on a little bit, a novella has to do a lot more right, whereas something shorter, and again, there are lower boundary limits, but short stories don't have to do absolutely everything. They can just do one thing really well to make it worthwhile, to have somebody read it and go, oh, you know, I really liked it for X. Whereas again, something four or five times the length you're going to have to really be firing on all cylinders and knock everything out of the park to justify it. And uh, shorter work also let people who maybe have not worked up to that level of being proficient with a novella and keeping all those plates spinning. It lets people be able to break in and ease in a little bit and have a little more access to publication and it lets for new voices. And uh, I think by and large, that's gone over well. Seeing a lot of new people, you know, some of whom may not necessarily become professional authors. There may be some people who just have a couple stories in them 
and then they're they're done, then they move on and that's fine. But they may also be people who continue to work and they continue to do short stories and they get longer and they work on a novella, they work on a novel and it works a little bit like the way it used to, you know, 20 years ago where you started with a short form and then you practiced, you know, you were a craftsman before you were an artist and then you honed your novel length. You say 20 years ago, how do you feel it is now? Now, I think the field has changed and uh, I wouldn't put any real value on the change. I don't think it's for better or for worse, but I think people are more comfortable for whatever reason, jumping into novel lengths and just writing novels and not feeling like they have to go through the short story grinder, I guess, that short stories aren't a prerequisite to get to a novel. I mean, certainly I would like to see everybody do short stories before they try novels. That'd be great for me. But they are different forms. They don't require, you know, except on fairly surface level, they don't require the same writing skills. They don't require the same uh, ideas, I guess. So there's just less of an expectation that that's the mandatory path to being a published novelist is you you do your times in the short fiction salt mines mm. and then eventually you get the books and that's fine i'd rather people who write short fiction do it because they like the form not because they're just you know sort of frustrated novelists yeah. putting in the time just spitballing but do you think maybe part of the influence in this shift has been a bit more of a shift towards the um, trilogy, writing for the trilogy. You know, so just people are just thinking like longer uh, because that seems to be what yeah. a lot of publishing is hungry for. Or am I just guessing here? Yeah, very few things have only one cause, but I think that is definitely part of it is the shift in the business end of things where the popularity of the giant fantasy doorstop has sort of affected the length mm -hmm. of books they want to write. You go back and you read Roger Zelazny's Amber book specifically, uh, the first cycle. I don't generally recommend the second cycle to people, but I, I do like them all. And they feel like this huge sweeping fantasy epic with huge ideas and characters. And you finish it and you go, this whole book was 250 pages, you know, and all five of them are like that. So it's literally 1200 pages and change for the whole thing. And people just don't write like that anymore. The expectation of readers for what they're going to get when they buy a book. You know, book prices are not so low that people feel like they can look at a book and just kind of go, oh, okay, well, this was a, a quick, efficient read. It was great and I'm done. Or maybe I'll reread it. You know, when you're buying a, a hardcover or it's not like electronic prices are that much lower often. And, you know, you're paying $27, $32 for a book. Yeah, of course, you're going to want something giant that makes you feel like you got your money's worth. I also think the increasing access to self-publishing and electronic publishing is also part of it because why make yourself write those short stories if you can just put out a book on your own anyway? I, I personally have really enjoyed the short story more than ever in the last while, I think, because I can get in, enjoy something changing, meet a new character, meet a new setting, and get out. And if I love it, I can always find more by that author. But if I didn't care for it, not a big investment. Whereas if someone is like, hey, Oliver, you should read this 700 page, whatever. I'm like, man, this better be good. Because <laughs> this is going to be a lot of my reading time. Yeah, you actually used part of an expression that I sometimes use to explain what the appeal for short fiction is for me, which is that it's an idea vector that you get in, you deliver the idea as, you know, as efficiently, but also 
elegantly if possible. You know, we don't want to be Spartan about it necessarily, but you get in, you deliver the idea and you get out. And that's what it's about. And being able to do that efficiently is a real art form. It doesn't mean prose doesn't count. It doesn't mean character doesn't count. It doesn't mean real emotions don't count because, you know, your idea can involve emotions. But that's the great thing about a short story. That idea will stick with you far longer than anything else. There are things I've read in Slush years ago that I did not buy for whatever reason. They weren't right for the magazine, so on and so forth, that had a, an idea that has stuck with me at this point, a, a, almost a, a decade later. And again, those are unpublished stories. Those are things that I said, this is good. I really hope this gets picked up somewhere. But that's the value of a short story is it is a short story. And you'll remember that. Plus, if you're just like tired of your usual authors, like go pick up the latest analog, let's say, and you know, breeze through that and see who's in it, you know, from the flashback to the novella. None of it's asking the world of you. Right. You know? Exactly. That is the, sort of the appeal is that it's a sampler. It's a Whitman sampler of things. You know, there's going to be some stuff you love and maybe you're going to, I don't know, stay away from those weird cherry cordials. I don't know. <laughs> There's one question I really wanted to put to you because it really made my eyebrow pop up as I was doing my research for this. Uh, reading through the September-October issue of this year, I saw a, a somewhat sad notice of the passing of a man named Don Sakers, who I'm not familiar yeah. with, but he was, I gather, Analog's reference librarian. What is a reference librarian for a digest uh, or magazine? What, what, what is their role? How does that, how does that go? Well, so in very simple terms, the analog reference library is the book review column. So the reference librarian is the book review columnist. But, you know, in a typical analog fashion, we do our best to put our own spin on everything. So Don was a staple of fandom for a long time, and he'd done a lot of different reviews. And he himself in his personal life was a librarian. So he had a very wide knowledge of the field of the genre of books and that sort of thing in general. And there are a number of things from his own, um, it's sort of a, an obtuse term, but his own humanity to also that knowledge that allowed him to contextualize big currents in the field are really what made him so excellent at that column. You know, he, he would have been great to ask this question to about currents and trends and things in the field, whatever he would have said would have, um, you know, just completely overshadowed any answer I might've had. Is there anywhere uh, in Analog's possession, like a reference library, as it were, or an archive of all of the issues going back, you know, however many decades to the start there, or well, not however many, 90 plus, but, uh, but yeah, do you guys have that? Yeah. So Sadly, the collection has been pared down as the office has moved a few times over the years, but there is a complete or mostly complete comprehensive collection that right now is stored in our parent company offices in Connecticut. So during pandemic, we closed down our New York offices because nobody was going in. So it was silly to pay that lease. But in those offices, we had a complete run sometimes in duplicate of Astounding, going back to the beginning, and Asimov's. And the same company that owns us also puts out Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine and Ellery Queen. They're not as old, but they have similar sort of pulp origins going back to the 50s in some cases. And um, we had complete runs of them too. So when we closed down the office, we packed all those things up and shipped them up, which is unfortunate because it makes accessing them 
very difficult, but they do exist. And by and large, they are complete. There are a few things that are missing here and there from over the decades that, you know, somebody walked into an office in 1954 and, you know, uh, just never put it back. So we do have a list of a few things that actually I was just in contact with someone saying that the next time I find myself at a convention or a pulp convention, I'll uh, keep an eye out for the few things on the list to try and complete our collection. But the other thing that's been sort of hanging over my head a little bit is that, as you probably know, a lot of the old pulps were not meant to last by definition, and they're not in great shape. And they're a little bit like the aging gunslinger, that they have one last good hurrah in them, you know, maybe enough energy to get them scanned, possibly, and then they're dust. That's it. So it's like we got one shot to figure out a way to preserve as much of the stuff prior to the 40s. It's really the stuff from the, the 30s that's you know like yeah the stuff where the paper starts dire. foxing it looks like it's in a slow motion microwave situation yeah yeah no i i have been fortunate because the merrill has a tremendous pulp collection they almost have a complete run of uh, analog slash astounding the earliest issue i found was two in my research so not bad uh, not <laughs> uh yeah and they have complete a complete run of amazing and a, you know, many other ones um okay so uh, we're getting near the end here. I know you have submission guidelines clearly stated on your website, and I know if you're like any other editor I've ever spoken to, every day you get submissions that plainly completely ignore them. What would you like aspiring and maybe even some established sci-fi writers to know, to really have on their bones before they submit a work to Analog? Well, you know, at the risk of beating a, a dead horse, sounding like a broken record, all of those cliches, um, an element of relevant accurate science is the number one, the, the number two, sometimes number one thing I look for in a story. When I start reading a story, the first thing that will hit me one way or another is the prose. How readable is it? Is this accessible and interesting and grammatically correct? But once I get past that, and it doesn't take long to get past it, the next thing I'm doing is I'm reading for science. I'm reading for science content and in some cases, depending on length, I'm reading for a, a made up science per page quota, where if, you know, it's uh, 40,000 words, but there's only one kind of small idea somewhere around 23,000 words in, that's not going to work. So that idea, that element of science, that kernel is the thing that just has to be there. And without that, it doesn't matter how good it is. It's not right for analog. Fair enough. So as we extend out from uh, the past and present, uh, the future of analog, do you see it continuing as a print digest or ultimately becoming like strictly online? Or do you guys see us trying out something even newer and crazier in terms of format or getting it out there? Like, what do you see down the line? Well, um, we've just gotten past the 90th anniversary two years ago. So in the back of my head, the farthest out I have planned is the centennial. So and that's not meticulously planned to be sure, but it is something that I'm like, okay, let's get it to that. Let's do something special. And then, you know, if I get hit by a bus or whatever, I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> um, on a practical level, it's really whatever it takes to survive, I guess. Um, the print isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Print is still popular. There are definitely periods where people were like, you know, you should go electronic, print is dead. And yes, electronic has been good. Electronic has been helpful, but also electronic has not and cannot and likely will not ever completely overtake print. And there's no reason to be dogmatic about that. Why not do both? 
And so that's what we're doing. And so if something else presents itself, we'll do that. So again, you know, whatever it takes to um, stick around and get the word out, because I feel like that is always the big hurdle is sort of PR and distribution. And it, it's something that a lot of authors, you know, in recent years have become familiar with that it's not enough to write a good novel or whatever it is you're writing, you can be as confident as you want to be about your product. But putting out the word, getting it known, getting it seen is the key thing. And that is always where the challenge is for us. And I don't particularly want to become a full-time PR person. I don't like it. I'm not good at it. But it is something that we're constantly thinking about needing to push and make ourselves known and have our presence out there and expanding to the other people who don't even know we exist. Uh, because there are people who are unaware, but I know would really like what we do. Okay. So this is a question that I find can make guests almost immediately start to sweat, <laughs> start, to, start to feel kind of guilty. Like, all right. but uh, so just, you know, do your best, man. Don't worry about it. You, more than most people I speak to here, come across a lot of authors. What would be, in terms of just whatever's just really lit a fire under your bum recently, whatever comes to mind first, you know, somebody's not mentioned, it's not because you don't like them, reading recommendations. Who are the other writers out there who you feel are doing really interesting things in the kind of space that Analog takes up right now? Yeah. Asking this question to an editor is like asking a parent to choose a favorite child. Like, it's difficult for anyone, but it's near impossible for me to recommend specific people from my own magazine, because if I put them in the magazine, I think they're worth reading by definition. So I recommend people read as many markets as possible that I definitely think people should, of course, read analog. But I also know and again, I don't have a tremendous amount of time to read outside of work, so I don't read a ton of novels. Uh, come award time, I kind of force myself. But, you know, I do keep an eye on what other people are doing. There are not a ton of editors out there, and there isn't really an editor school. There are no editor writing workshops. There are no editor support groups. So everybody's kind of working in their own weird little bubble, and I think it's important to acknowledge and encourage the other people who are doing good work, particularly in short fiction. So yes, it's very easy for me to say, I think people should read Analog, but of course I think people should read Asimov's. Yes, I'm friends with Sheila, that should go without saying, but I also think people should read whatever John Joseph Adams is doing. People should read Clark's World. People should read FNSF. You know, people should read Faya. People should read Strange Horizons. People should you know, listen to escape pod, you know, engage with all of this stuff. A lot of it is free. The stuff that costs does not cost very much. Analog is not free, but we are not very expensive for what you get. So I can't recommend specific authors, but I can recommend other outlets besides myself. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some important ones that probably I'll kick myself about later, but everybody has their own unique space. Everybody has their own unique voice and they're all worth checking out. You know, it's inevitable that some are going to appeal to you more than others, but everybody's doing good work and they all, everybody's doing it because certainly nobody's doing it to get rich. Everybody's doing it because they love the genre and they believe in the work. And um, as much as possible, you know, I, I want to uh, encourage that. And actually it occurs to me, there was something on a previous podcast, and this is a recommendation 
and it is not for a even a living author, but I'm going to mention to you, uh, Oliver, that um, you had said you were working your way through some of the recommendations in the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide for sort the of fa- reading. List, yes, yeah. exactly. In the in the, the classic fantasy novels. One thing that I don't know off the top of my head if it ever made it in Carl Edward Wagner's Kane books. I just finished reading Bloodstone, Darkness Weaves, and oh shoot, the other one. I've read all three novels, and I'm going to be discussing Cold Light, that short story of his, on the Dark Crusade podcast, which if you're not familiar with it, it exists, and it's all about Carl Edward writing, including, of course, Kane. <laughs> okay, there you go. That was the one thing that I was listening to the podcast, and I said, oh, you know what? There were a bunch of recommendations, and nobody mentioned this. I got to mention it. So, you know, it's sword and sorcery, it's fantasy, it's, of course, completely outside of analog as a genre. But for me, personally, as a reader who reads other stuff, I was like, I gotta mention this, I gotta recommend that. I know I talked about the Roger Zelazny Amber things, which are classics, and they're known, they're not, you know, maybe under the radar, but, you know, they could use more attention anyway, because they're great. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I feel like that's a good start. Okay, so, uh, you know, this has been absolutely delightful, and I'm, I'm very grateful to you uh, giving us your time and these wonderful answers to my questions. Where can people find Analog online, and what's coming up in the near future that people should be excited about? Well, we are at analogsf.com, uh, the website, and that's also where you would go to find the links to guidelines, and that's also where you can go to find the submission page to submit stories once you read the guidelines and format things appropriately. We also have an Instagram and we have Twitter with more or less the same name, and they are both linked from the website as well. Okay, and so we're at Analog SF for those. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then um, what do we have coming up? I don't know. It's easy to get lost in uh, the difference between what is actually coming up and what I'm working on because, you know, print editors were like six to eight months ahead. Um, speaking very broadly, it just we have a lot of good stuff coming up. As I said, we just passed our 90th. So I don't have any uh, sort of major annual projects in the future. We just got through a sort of visual redesign a little bit to bring the logo up to date, let's say. And we're probably not tackling anything like that, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what the centennial holds in another eight years, I guess. Yeah, hey, fair enough, man. If, and heavy quotation marks here, listeners, uh, heavy, heavy finger quotes. If all you've got coming are more great issues of Analog, this longest running continuous specfic magazine, well, that's pretty good, I reckon. I'd like to think so. All right, man. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, and I uh, hope you have a lovely rest of your evening. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, and you too. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.